listening to Inside Out with Turner and Seth. And we are just outside the Candler Park Festival waiting on the dispatch guys to come over. And a beautiful weekend here in Atlanta, Georgia. The weather is, I mean, the Candler Park finally got blessed with some good weather, Rob. Idyllic weather. Oh my God, it's like in the 80s. It's not even 90s. It was 101 last weekend, folks. And our headliner last night was Green Sky Bluegrass, and we got to sit down with Mr. Paul Hoffman, the principal songwriter and mandolinist, one of the lead vocalists. Yes, right, Rob. We had a wonderful time doing that, though. Uh, Paul, uh, we're gonna, you're going to be able to hear all of, all of Paul's interview. We, we're going to go ahead and play the whole entire thing for you. But, Rob, they had a wonderful set, stretched a little bit, played a bunch of songs from their... Uh, Latest album. And, uh, Rob, a little something special there at the end at the Encore, huh? Yeah, you got a shout-out. Seth, uh, during the interview and then after, uh, I think, uh, aside from the interview as well, was bonding with Paul, who, as you will learn in this interview, is a brand-new father. And um, how did he put it? Because I I'd missed it. Uh, he said something in the nature of this last song is, uh, well, you know what? Actually, we can just pull it from the recording. How about that? We just pull it right here. This is a song about dads. I want to send it out to my friend Seth, who's here. He's a dad. All for Money is our new CD, and a lot of the songs are taking life live. Some of them they're still feeling their way through, but uh, just really, really cool to catch them with this new. I guess the, the, they've had the material since January, but it's still rather new. Rather new. I mean, they're they're and. Really, what we're catching them on the beginning of a exciting run for them. A lot's going on, and they're about to do their Camp Green Sky. Matter of fact, folks, you're probably driving on your way to Camp Green Sky or flying and listening. So, thank you for taking the time. I, I wish I was there. I bet Rob is as well. It's going to be a jealous. good one. Grisman. And if Grisman sits in with Green Sky, I'll be extra, extra jealous. Uh, before we go any further, Rob, I want to thank our sponsor, Polay Clark. Don't wait until April and get screwed. Get Polade. Call them today. You can find them at PolayClark.com. Financial advising, accounting, business management, etc. You hear us talking about it all the time. Take a minute. Check them out. They don't just have the smarts. They have the hots. What do I mean by that? Their heart is that they're looking out for the long picture for you. They're not going to just let you spend yourself into a bad future. They're going to help you manage your money with a long-term perspective and with an eye to obeying the tax law. The ever-changing tax laws. And speaking of tax laws, so Green Sky, they yes. are crushing it right now. I'm really excited for Camp Green Sky. Again, we're not going to be there. Hopefully next year. We really should push to be there next year, Rob. There's no reason why we're not. A little inside out, a little Osiris. Hey, Osiris. Osiris. So, Rob, we got a new sponsor with Osiris, Nugs.net. And I'm very pleased to have this sponsor because it's I'm already a customer. Well, for you, you're not a customer yet. We got good news for you, folks. Any new subscribers, Nugs is offering a 35% discount on their annual subscription. All you got to do is go to nugs.net slash inside out. And what is that? Nugs.net slash inside out. Now, look, they've got a growing collection of over 15,000 full length concert recordings from bands like Pearl Jam, Green fish. Sky, Bluegrass. Well, they're fish adjacent. It's live fish, but I think that's all part of the same pool. It is part of the same part of the part of the pool. So many Absolutely. string dusters are on there. Um, but like you said, Pearl Jam, Grateful Dead, yeah. or Dead, at least Dead and Company. I Dispatch mean, they, and Dopapod have each just joined. 
Oh, was it, what was the other big one you just... Oh, yeah, yeah, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. I and, mean, come and, on. And for years and years, not Bruce Springsteen... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, not to mention all the... All the other bands that you go and see, like uh, you know, on a, on a nightly basis, that are new, but there's a lot of old stuff too, like you know, so they're gone. Well, it's just that Springsteen was always reticent about doing that, and was waiting for the right organization to come along that he could trust, and they felt it was doing it well and was doing it in a way that was fair to both the fans and the artists. Nugs.net, even though Nugs.net came out of the jam world, Pearl Jam, Bruce Springsteen, and other bands that aren't part of the jam world at all have joined Metallica. And look, if you already have a subscription. Give the gift of live music to a friend. It's you a can great get, gift. Your Father's Day is coming up. Go ahead and give a gift. Nugs.net slash inside out for 35% off your annual subscription. You want to talk about a gift that keeps on giving? That is this. You can listen to it on your phone, on your computer, even Sonos, straight up on your Sonos. So check it out. Nugs.net slash inside out. And I want to say again. Again. This is a, if you're a fan of this genre, this Brad Serling. Who needs me to curate his weekly live stash form? But as far as this, Brad Serling does wonderful work getting us the music and getting the musicians compensated properly. This is an important part of our scene. This is a great thing to support people. Nugs.net slash inside out. Osiris. The wonderful Osiris. You know, we have a new uh, touchdowns all day. John Gutwillig of the Disco Biscuits. He's the lead guitarist, and he really walks you through jams. Very intricate explanation, but done in a kind of in classic barber. That's his nickname. Uh, laid back fashion. Really good podcast. Touchdowns all day. Check it. Check and it. And Joey Lichter was just at the uh, Red Rocks show. Professor Lichter went out there, and he had explain who Joey Lichter is. Uh, it doesn't matter. He's just Professor Joey Lichter. Yo Yo Montoya. Yo Yo Montoya. Listen, You're so Yo Yo, it doesn't. They don't need to know him to know that he thought the show was in. It was amazing. Said, yeah, I don't know said how Red they Rocks do it. really, really was. They they fused all these songs together and they put on an excellent show. And our boy Benny sat in. Benny Bloom, Afro Blue. I think Benny that was down Bloom. in New Orleans. So yeah, great happenings in the disco. But I don't know how they keep ripping such incredible shows when they don't when they only play like fifteen a year. I don't get it, but they do it. And oh, Star Kitchen of- is doing wonderfully too. And Spaga, Aaron, the keyboardist, mm-hmm. has his, his new side project, Spaga. He's crushing. Very jazz-oriented. And Star Kitchen's going to be part of the disco, uh, excuse me, the Umphreys McGee Iceland. Yeah, which sold out. Excursion. Congratulations, Umphreys McGee. Of course. I mean, it's the Iceland. Lights and Brendan and Jake, I'm there. Yeah, but you're like an unusual one. <laughs> Wait, you were, oh, but you, you're there, right? Mr. Who Didn't Buy a Ticket. You're not there. You're not going. Oh, I'll be there. You Big watch mouth. It. You watch Big it. mouth, Rob Turner. Big mouth. Oh, as soon as you uh, get a job. So it was Which, really. Uh, if by the way, we are taking sponsors. So if you're, it interested. was really great to see Green Sky. Uh, nice to talk to Paul. You know, I hadn't uh, in my research been able to find much on his youth. So we really got into his youth a good bit. And then after that, you got a bromance, didn't you? Uh, Dave was after the show. I had a really nice talk with Dave, who's a big Cubs fan, who's going to Game Four, of the Bruins Blues NHL Finals. So he really uh, won me over with that. And he's seen a lot of classic, huge games. We were we were sharing experiences. Big, huge sports fan. Really cool guy. Totally down to earth. Let's throw it over to the interview, and then uh, we'll have some more comments afterwards. Yeah, just a little bit at the end. So uh, without further ado, folks, we hope you enjoy our interview with Mr. Paul Hoffman. Yeah. 
York Music Festival, Rob. Thank you, Kevin, once again for having us in your house. This is where we uh, interviewed Marcus King. Oh, and speaking of a king, we got a king in the building. The new king of the new Jamgrass world. <laughs> Whoa. Or strong one of them. start. <laughs> Mr. Paul Hoffman, riding high on Green Sky Bluegrass's All for Money release. Um, which I understand is a bit of a different ethos. You, you guys used to really look at the studio as let's get the songs out there for what they are. Whereas with this record, you're like you're feeling like let's pull a little of what we do live and try to do that in the studio. Yeah, this record I felt like we succeeded. I don't know how much of it was intentional, but uh, we succeeded with making an album that's more like a show. I think we that expression that you said like serve the song is kind of a studio thing you'll hear a lot of musicians say. You know, recording slow songs and stuff that we thought might never translate to the show, but still giving the song its voice in the studio. And with this record, it was more like, what would we do if we were playing this live? And we kind of treated every song that way. And it's made it, it's made the record really fun to play uh, live at shows. And do you find um, you're in a band that has an old-timey feel? So you go into the studio and you're using these this new technology to help uh, further that feel can you explain some examples of that and can you talk about the ethos behind that a little bit i don't know how old timey we are the Ooh. instrumentation i might disagree but i know what you mean because but we're like the a sound, sound. Not, disagree. To, not the feel of the music but right. a sound yeah, out of the, instrument. the acoustic instruments and stuff um you're right about technology i think with bluegrass music especially they like is a real trend for this real state-of-the-art like awesome quality recording techniques and we don't do very much of that. We record to tape, we use old mics. We often lean towards things that sound less perfect and more gritty in recording uh, way. We use some analog effects that are pretty old and sometimes dirty. And uh, we like that sound a little bit more. Sometimes there's something about art, I think, when you make a conscious choice to choose something less perfect for the sake of character. Uh and we like to think we're doing that when we're making records, whether we're succeeding or not, is for others to decide, I suppose. Well, let's before we before we go on with that, we want, I want to congratulate you. You're a new father. Yes. Baby Juniper, right? Yes. Juniper. 44 days old today. Wow. 44 days old. <laughs> so that, that He's crossed the 40-day mark, which means he'll get my dad jokes. <laughs> oh, I'm pro. I know how to fix things now. Oh, I know how to fix things. How you features, pick up the phone you, and you dial. <laughs> how features work on things. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we put out something to your friends, okay? Not to, like, your fans, but your friends. And um, I just, I pull, I'm going to pull one random here. I just, you know, we put them in envelopes and stuff. And uh, and they wanted to give you a gift. So let's pull this here. Let's see what we got. Oh, wow. This is lovely. I love gifts. From Colorado, Denver, Colorado, uh, Katie Rose is offering to babysit... You have one free babysitting uh, as her gift to you for your for your baby. Oh, wow, thank you, Katie. So you can keep this. Um, and uh, there you go. Congratulations. Yes, gift certificates. I used to make these for my parents, you know, and for gifts when I had no money. <laughs> and that is a valuable thing. Now, when you go home, is your wife going to be like, "Hey, you've been out having fun. Now you watching the kid, and I'm going to go out for a few nights." <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, she's hard to leave. She's really amazing, little precious angel baby. So your wife or the baby, <laughs> both of them. But the baby I was referring to is hard to leave. So I don't think Michelle wants to go anywhere. And we are going. To, we are going Green to Michigan Sky, right? together though next week. So baby's first airplane ride next week well, for our music first festival. For the baby. 
Yeah, milestone after milestone. <laughs> Has this sparked any inspired any songs yet? This experience of being a father, or you know, being, I have a, uh, yes, a I've written wife? a lot of songs. Most recently, most of them are to the melodies of other songs. Most recently, I've rewritten the song "Brass Monkey" hmm. uh, with the new words "Breast Milky" <laughs> for Chunky Cheekies. So a lot of songs like that. There's a lot of diaper changing content. So we that got I'll a parody album coming out. It's the Paul Hoffman parenting album. Yeah, there's your first side project. Breast parenting Milky. parodies. She's gonna be real stoked. I shared that song with you guys. <laughs> well, listen, listen. We don't want to milk any more out of you on that subject. <laughs> you want to get back to the record because I. Got... But let, now, before we get to the record, let's talk sure. about songwriting a little bit. Yeah, I want to because I know that. Guys, from what we've heard in the past, that you you bring the majority of the records in, and you bring a framework in, but you're fully prepared for for everybody's stamp majority of the songs placed. in. Yeah, the songs. Yeah. Yep, uh, I do bring a lot of songs to the band, and what you say is true. Yes, sometimes I have a real specific idea for the songs, but quite often it's just a framework. And as the band has grown and evolved, I tend to come less prepared every time because oh. we're getting better at working. As a unit, you go figure. Nineteen years later, we've learned some things. Seven therapists and nineteen years later. Yeah. So uh, with this record, there were several songs that were so framework that there was hardly anything there, and they were real fun to work on and record. Stuff that I wasn't sure if it even really had a lot of creative integrity that we turned into real cool stuff. Wasn't there one that just sort of appeared that day? Yeah, I wish I didn't know the one that's kind of got that trancy mandolin thing. It was kind of a real simple idea for a song that happened in the morning literally you went we, through the day yeah we went through the day and we worked on that song for the whole day usually we kind of skip around a little bit and work on stuff and then move to something else and then come back but that day we worked on that song for an entire day and then we never revisited it huh one day a lot of people were probably like wow it took a whole day to make that one song <laughs> <laughs> but uh <laughs> we were composing in the studio more than we used to too that's something that you know i think more success will afford you and more money meaning more studio time every time we make a record we give ourselves more time so we're more experimental in the studio than we in the beginning it was like get in there and bust it out we got three days we got this much dollars but you're coming in there with some songs and then you got burl who gave you some couple songs too what's that relationship like with you uh it's been a while since we did a burl tune didn't you do one uh, i thought he brought something over to you all in that that last recording we did a couple tunes with a friend of ours from michigan named aaron allen co-wrote some stuff uh, he co-wrote a song with Bont, our banjo player, and with Dave. Maybe two of the songs with Dave. So he is three. He's a lyric lyricist. Got it. Uh, Burl, we recorded not for a long time. Five Interstates, which was two thousand eight. Recently, been really realizing how long ago some of these things we did were. Eleven years. Yeah. So what, what's an example of the opposite? Where in recent years, where there was a song where you brought in. And you were like, well, I kind of would like this part, or I'd kind of like this kind of feel. Can we shoot for this? Where you were yeah. more specific than usual. Uh, more, for mo- uh, more for Money. All for Money, the title track of the record, right. was a very specific vision of mine that I had worked on for a really long time. I kind of was like carrying around the idea in my brain, meditating on it. And I conceived this idea for the piece it's like a real linear thing it's not my typical uh style of you know verse chorus first chorus bridge chorus out whatever uh <laughs> it's got all these parts and there's that middle jam part that's kind of weird and spacey and stuff and i wanted i had a very specific idea for creating uh confusion and discomfort for the listener for the idea behind the lyrics uh and so when I taught it to the band. I'm like, this part should go like this. This part, 
I think goes like this. And then in this part, I think you should do this. And then here we'll do something like this. Uh, that's not to say like it all came out exactly as I said, because turns out these guys have some good ideas too. <laughs> <laughs> but you even had a vision of the instrumental serving the, the meaning of the song, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. adding and it, to the confusion of it or something? Yeah, and it, it was kind of difficult in the studio. We worked on it for a while and it was kind of like, well, because it's kind of, it's more of a like thematic mood thing than it is a musical thing for the jam. So we were like looking for a musical idea and it's long too. We were, and we talked a lot about whether or not it was too much or too self-indulgent and the weird factor and if people were going to hate it. And, you know, I listened, I've listened to it a few times recently because over the long break, I warm up with our music and I was, I still am kind of like, wow, it's really long. Is that a good idea? <laughs> I don't know. I love it that you end the track, you end with the title track and it, it definitely kind of summarizes the, the thing. Well, I don't know. I love it. Thank you. Uh, the song itself is real about what we do in our relationship with our fans and our relationship to our music as a job. And I don't think I'd ever really written about that in such a specific way. I tend to be a little guarded with my song meanings uh, because they're personal and because I, I want people to relate them to themselves or to whatever they want however they want and i write things to be intentionally multi eclectic allegorical yeah multiple meanings are possible so i I tend to be a little guarded and say not say this song is about this or i'll say this song's inspired by some event or something but this song all for money if you're looking out there though on that if when you're looking out then we'll get back to all for money but when you're looking out and someone's having a huge smile and reacting and and enjoying something and you're like i'm singing about death it's crazy yeah um the song living over i wrote about something that's not very happy. And so many people have like reinterpreted it for themselves as a positive thing. Even myself, uh, you know, going out last weekend was the first shows we played since the, I became a father and I knew that I was going to go on stage and start singing all my own songs and finding new meanings in them. And I got really emotional during living over and choked up Wow! because I, the chorus is baby we're dying or maybe we're living over and over again. And I was like, wow, my, I'm living on in my child and I was all emotionally moved and I was like, this is so cliche and corny and I'm like trying to sing and I'm getting teared up on stage and I'm like, this is just the beginning of our catalog. I still have a lot of songs to go through where I'm going to have those experiences. So anyway, uh, often I'm just sort of like, don't even know what some of the songs are really about or what they mean. Um, but not this one all for money. This is a very direct statement from me to the listener about our relationship band me and the listener um and it's been really fun to talk about it that way instead of coming in here and being like well i don't know man i was kind of having a bad day (laughs) or something and and i understand being guarded about your the initial meaning of the song to like press or to fans or or listeners or whatever but what about to the other members when you're in the recording process do you ever want the meaning of the song to impact aside from the one you just talked about do you want do you ever want it to impact what they cho- what they choose how they choose to adorn well is it, he goes to the studio with them he gives them he, he lays it out and then yeah, they have I a, mean, so they have a any... survey at the end and he and you see a little smiley face and all this and he kind of gets and he's like okay Anders uh, again you got it wrong Anders <laughs> that's not what it's about um kind of that's an interesting question um they definitely know some more of the stories behind the music that I don't tell the people uh, uh but, you know, I think I kind of do that same thing for them, too, is, like, allow, you know, I think it's, sometimes it's kind of presumptuous for the songwriter to explain what it's about, because if you have to explain what it's about, you didn't succeed in telling your story correctly. 
And, you know, maybe something I'm singing about the way that I sing about it intentionally or unintentionally doesn't elaborate the whole idea and therefore can or conveys a whole different meaning. So, you know, for me to have all the information behind every single word I chose means that I'm going to interpret the song totally different than if I just tell it to the band or sing it to the band. And then if they get a feeling from it, that's probably the feeling I'm conveying. And that's the one that they should follow. Did that make sense? That's yeah, absolutely. Stonery. Definitely. <laughs> are you ever su- really surprised by fans, how dialed in they are? Do you have some fans that are like in your mind that really see, they'll talk to you and they really get it? I'm sure you have plenty that don't. Yeah, they do. And the opposite, too. They think I'm in their mind. And then I'm writing about their things. Um, <laughs> which is, gr- I mean, it's all really great that it's flattering. And I did, never expected that people would be listening so closely. Um, something that I think is the greatest thing about our band is so cool. We, in one minute, we can be this electric rock and roll no cares caution in the wind kind of jam band just playing music to play music and other times we can be very serious with lyrical content and emotional subject matter and the fans are dialed into both of those things and i think that you often don't find that second thing with the first band you sort of sacrifice like i love this band's jams but I don't know what any of the lyrics are or something like that. Um, well, the lyrics are just too stupid. Or they're just silly. Silly, a better way, yeah. Or bad, I don't know. Um, and I, th- I look cherish that we have both of those things. Maybe it's not that weird to have both those things, but for me, I'm, it's it's something I value. Well, in a similar much. event, you also you can be a very song-oriented band or you could be very improvisational. Do you find that when you're on the heels of an album like this, that you tend to, when you're on the road, you're still jamming here and there, but you're more song-oriented, and then as you get it further away from the record, then the improv starts getting longer and more stretched out? Absolutely. The songs grow um, and change a lot. And, but, we're, and the ethos in general, too. <clears throat> yeah, and we're real open to that, too. I change the lyrics sometimes with songs. I feel like the songs should grow. Uh, I've always viewed the record as, the biggest thing about making a record and that form of art is the commitment to it, You know, the permanence. And we make these decisions where, like, should it be this way or this way? And we're like, how should we be on the record? It doesn't mean that that's the way the song is. So later we change stuff. We're like, hey, that in the studio this felt too short or this felt too long. And we rearrange stuff. We're hesitant to do it too soon because people get used to what they get used to. But I'll be surprised sometimes I go back and listen to studio recordings of old songs and I'll be like, what the hell is that? Because we changed them <laughs> and I forgot. <laughs> it's really interesting. Right. Well, let me ask you before we do that, Rob. Let me ask you, um, and this kind of maybe we should wait for the. You tell me if you want to wait for the way back. But I'm curious as to where you started when you discovered yourself as a songwriter. When you started to really realize where you got your muse, where you started to construct songs and say, "Hey, you know what? That's what I do." Uh, in high school, I started. Well, then let's get in the way back. You want to hold that? Yeah, just get in the way back. Well, just real quick before high school, because you first wanted to be an actor. Where did that come from? And then if you could take us from the segue from being interested in acting to being interested you know, in So there I was, born. <laughs> what town were you? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Muskegon, Michigan. Uh, I lived there until I went to college. But I lived in Michigan until five years ago when I moved to Colorado or four years ago. Uh, I did a lot of community theater and performing from a very young age. I think I started taking acting classes or something like that when I was seven or eight. What's a role that sticks out in your memory that Kaiser. was particularly fun for you? I was an orphan in Oliva. Oh, right on. Please, uh, sis. Can I have some more? I was the original character in 
the musical of On Golden Pond. You familiar with that movie? Yeah, or book. They I've did never a, seen mu- a musical. There's a musical of it, and I'm the original character whose name I don't even remember. <laughs> Golden, the kid, kid, the kid. But I was more of an angsty teenager with like long hair and tie dye shirts because the director was like, "Just be you." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I was always interested in performing. We joke a lot that we, as as a band, that we're entertainers, not musicians. That's our excuse for when we do stuff that's musically really not awesome. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I always wanted to do that. I started playing guitar played the viola first like when they come around in school and they're like does anyone want to play one of these things i picked the viola that didn't last long three or four years i started playing guitar and i was like this is cooler probably seemed easier after playing the viola it's tough <laughs> yeah it is tougher uh and then i started writing songs and singing and learning songs i made a record in high school myself recorded on a four track Oh, he had a side project already. I misspoke earlier. <laughs> Nobody gets to hear that. It's really, it's really interesting. Um, but stay Next tuned interview. to the end of the episode, and you might just... Some down the road will get it's it out. It's not on Spotify. <laughs> Don't look. Paul Hoffman's white tape. Yeah, so that's that's the short short version, I suppose. Um, and at that point, when did you when did you discover you uh, have the yeah, talent for writing? The writing in particular. Were you writing like short stories, and then it turned like, what's your story? Uh, yeah, I was writing poetry as a, at a young age and stuff, and that translated to songs. And I, I majored in lit in college. Read a lot of books. Wrote a Where lot was of papers. That? In and that's Rob's phone. Who is it? Should we answer? Probably. It's probably is it AT and T telemarketer? Frog probably Riff? Jefferson Waffle. You know, it never rings any other time. But now here I'm in an interview, and then a ringer goes off. Yeah. Well, he can, he, if I turn he can probably off. turn off your ringer up. Go on. Yeah. So in, I moved to Kalamazoo to go to college, and I minored in music. I was going to major in music because I was interested in music. Uh, I, and there wasn't really like a there wasn't a musical program that really worked for me uh, because I was a guitar player singer-songwriter kind of style, not a great guitar player. So jazz guitar would have been pretty difficult for me. I did some studying at the end of high school. I joined jazz band and got a little bit more serious about reading music and playing more challenging things. Uh, And I was really active in choir and singing all throughout school. I think my senior year of high school, I was in three choirs and an extracurricular choir and at an independent study music class. So I had like four or five music classes my senior year. Right. So, and so did you, someone would say you got all your requirements. <laughs> I like that one. Thank you. Thank so you were into the technical aspects of singing in an early age. Yeah. And very, in the performance of a lot of singing. Um, I was in like the show choir that did musicals and the chamber choir that competed in small ensembles. I started at all male uh, chamber choir when I was in high school to go compete at those things also called boys club <laughs> uh, which I thought was funny still do <laughs> and instead of like men's ensemble right. boys, boys club, club. boys hey. club come we see us sing we're gonna sing fun. <laughs> then we'll play ball uh, but, so I auditioned to major in music as a singer also but it was the Classical emphasis just like was it was rigorous and just didn't seem like it was appropriate for me. I didn't get in on my first try either, so I was like, ah, fuck it, I'll minor in music, <laughs> uh, which worked out better for me because I got all the information I needed without some of the. It's majoring in music is intense. Duvall, our bass player, majored in music at Western also, and as cello performance and the schedule that you have to keep is just so rigorous. You almost can't play music because you're so busy playing music. Yeah. Uh, and I, got, I think I got a lot from majoring in literature. I only t- chose literature as my major because it was like the only thing I could tolerate 
least common denominator or something. I was enjoyed it. I, I saw de- no purpose for it really, but that degree might fuel the band. I was like, sure, I'll read books and talk about them and write papers about them for a college degree. That seems like a good use of money. <laughs> it's clearly informed your songwriting. Yeah, I, th- I tend to think so, but I certainly don't read as many books now, so it's a good thing I had that college professor choking four novels a week down my throat. Oh, my. I read so much. I just think back on it sometimes, and I'm like, where did I find the time? And then all the bar gigs, Green Sky was doing, driving out of Kalamazoo and back in my truck every weekend. But wait a minute. That was let's the first time you met them though. The hmm. funny thing to me is you're this deadhead fish guy. You go to the open mic night, and then uh, they start talking about Bill Monroe, and you're like, Bill, huh? Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know shit about the mandolin. I had seen. I started to get into Garcia Grisman via this younger kid that I went to high school with, and I'm like, oh, that stuff's really cool, Shady Grove. Like a lot of people get into bluegrass. Uh, but I discovered the mandolin that way and then saw David Grisman play Memorial Day weekend at a Hookaville. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I think, with, what year was that? Do you remember? 2000. 2000. I was at that one. I remember. Rad Dog. Uh huh. David Grisman. Do you, wow. remember, do you remember the big worm? That was uh, the headjams.com head booth I ran. Anyway. Mm, I don't. I was some, young. Some, some remember. Stoned. Anyway. <laughs> So that's when I decided to play mandolin. I'm like, man, that thing looks cool. Um, I, you know, I mentioned I made a record when I was in high school recording. Um, my plan was when you graduate from high school and your parents, friends give you all that money, I was going to buy this better recording console desk thing and do more recording. Uh, but I decided to go on six nights of fish tour and I didn't have enough money left (laughs) for the recording console. So I bought a mandolin for like 250 bucks. And when I moved to Kalamazoo, I had only had it for a couple weeks. And I met those guys like three weeks later. I'd maybe own the thing for two months tops. And like like you said, I approached them afterwards being young. and You didn't sit in. You just vivacious. waited until they were done. Yeah, they were a duo. Um, Bont and Bruza and singing and playing bluegrass. And I didn't know much about bluegrass yet, even though I had a mandolin. And I'm like, hey, you guys are cool. Can I come play with you? I like David Grisman. And <laughs> you didn't say you play like him. You just said you like him. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly wasn't playing like him. Uh, and they recommended that I listen to these two specific recordings. One was Bill Monroe. And then another one was a Rounder Records bluegrass compilation. And then I stopped, stopped by for a jam on this specific day. And I showed up. And then we've been doing it for 19 years now. That's crazy. What were those trio gigs like? <laughs> Loose, yeah. <laughs> rowdy. Uh, I think, yeah. I listen to some old recordings sometimes, and I'm like, God, we were so bad. Why did so many people like it? Uh, but I think we were just kind of fearless and like rowdy. You know, we were playing fast and aggressive, and you know, fucking up with fervor. Can I swear on this, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't see why the fuck not. So. I think it was always an. It's always been kind of an energy and a relationship to the spirit of rock and roll that I think has fueled our bands and our well, band and brought sky. in fans. That's our way. Yeah. Was it a punk element that you guys were putting out there with the trio? Yeah. If by punk you mean like recklessly sloppy and not caring, then yes. Is punk like that. Energy. Am I offending punk rock now? No. 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 <laughs> fervent energy behind it all. Yeah. Yeah. We went and we played without a bass player a lot too. We actually went and did the Telluride band contest without a bass player, and we were pretty proud of ourselves for being the only. Didn't Anders judge you? Bluegrass band. He did the year we won. <laughs> the next time we went, fix, 
fixed for sure. <laughs> and then joined the band a year later. Uh. It's like he was picking his own hand <laughs> right. for a card game or something. But yeah, the Green Sky, you're a bluegrass band, but the Green Sky is the opposite of that. I mean, it's pretty obvious now what you're saying with it. But were you ever of hesitant to you to put the name of a genre of music in the name of the band, even though it fits when viewed properly? When viewed properly, it certainly does. Uh, it makes a ton of sense. And yes. one without the other doesn't. You can't just be Green Sky. It would be Green Ski without the context. We've talked about getting rid of the bluegrass part of the name many, many, many times. Uh, we, for years, have decided that it's just not a good idea, regardless of how accurate it is anymore. Uh, the band, they were already calling themselves Green Sky Bluegrass when I saw them at that open mic, so I had nothing to do with the name. It was actually <laughs> another guy who used to play mandolin with them. Came up with it kind of in jest as like this would be a funny name for a bluegrass band. Wow. So yeah, it, there has been a lot of times where we're pretty convinced that it turns people away before they listen or forces them to make judgments without listening. But you know, look, you can only do so much to bring people in. It's like that cover thing you were talking about. Yeah, you know, if like if they're not willing to get past the name and give it a try, then how hard can you really push people? Were you improvising before Anders joined? Were you guys improvising as much, or was it more song, 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 song? No, we were always kind of being a little mini acoustic jam band. And it's funny that I think sometimes that that idea sort of was born from necessity in a weird way. Like I was a fan of Fish, and we're all great fans of the Grateful Dead, so we we're into jamming and improvisation. But there was this period where we were playing like these shows at Bell's that were th like three hour shows. We play three hour long sets with two set breaks that were like 20 minutes. And I think it was hard to fill that amount of time with material. And, you know, we were talking about it and I'd be like, these two bluegrass songs are exactly the same that we're playing back to back. Why don't we just play one of them for twice as long <laughs> and then save the other one for later in the show so that it's not the same thing back to back? Because right. so much of this material is just like the same. It's a formula, you know. So then we just kind of started taking longer solos and jamming out of need to, to fill more time for the show. <laughs> and then what about... How do you how do you meet your the other two guys? Do you remember initially, or did, how do you meet them to the point where you want to play with them, not just hanging out with <laughs> how them? How do you meet them to the point you want to play with them? <laughs> how do you make that? How do you make that decision? How do you know? Circle this box. The bass player for it was first, uh, and he went. We knew we met him because he was going to school in Kalamazoo. Also, started working at Bell's in that music program. Mm -hmm. But we met him at Bell's. He started working there, the brewery where we played a ton, our clubhouse. And he, towards the end of his college career, in May, actually, the new, what's that thing called? The new Richmond Bluegrass Festival or something like that. I just looked at pictures recently. And Sounds he, like in Indiana. I think so, yeah. He approached us and <laughs> asked if he could manage the band. And he could be really useful putting up flyers and stuff. And that he was finishing his musical career and or education degree and decided that there maybe wasn't a lot of practicality to being a professional cellist. And he maybe wanted to try and explore some other parts of the music industry. Being a professional poster hanger, I know. That. And we were like, you are not qualified to be a manager. And posters is not what a manager does. <laughs> but you play cello? Like college degree cello and he was like yeah and we were like uh get a bass why don't you just be in the band 
So that's how that happened. And that happened and real. And you still put up flyers. <laughs> <laughs> he did put up flyers. Right on. He owned a scooter for a while in Kalamazoo. And he was the postered route guru. He wrote it out for other bands and Those stuff. Those are still important. Yeah. Posters so he are was still, still important. A poster. Turns out bass players put up posters, not managers. <laughs> uh, so that sad. that was the... That was it for that. You How know? long were you a four-piece? That was two, the, his first gig was, first official gig was September of 2004, and in August, we brought him to a gig early, and we were like, you're playing two nights. He'd only had a bass since May. Oh, wow. well, but the cellist, though, I'm sure he picked it up pretty quickly. Yes. Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> 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 you ever just tell him, like, yeah, put the bass down, bring out the cello. I think so. I think we were bad for a while. I'm like, it's a miracle sometimes that we have so many fans because we were so bad for a while. I guess they weren't. Most people weren't listening yet. Yeah, so that's how we got him, and then we, once we had him, we had kind of uh, had a different bass player before a friend of ours that was sort of a temporary thing. We were a trio, and then we weren't a trio, and we were a trio, and then we weren't a trio, and then this friend of ours was, was like, I'll play bass with you guys for a while, but I can't really travel or anything. He's on the first record. His name is Chris Carr. Uh, so when we asked Mike to join the band, he sort of replaced Chris. I think we were maybe playing as a trio, or Chris had accepted a job and needed to leave anyway. Anyway, so then we then we started touring, out of playing out of state more, um, started driving down south and going to Asheville, because we thought that was the new grass mecca, and if we could make it there, then we could make it anywhere. So we did that over and over again for a while, until finally in 2006 we went out west and did really well in Portland and California, and we were like, what? This is crazy. That's still been, the quartet at that point. Still the quartet, and wow. we just, like, we we would go to Asheville, gosh, three times, four times a year, a lot, back and forth. Asheville, Atlanta, playing Smith's Old Bar and stuff, and we were just struggling. We'd maybe get like 20 more people every time. The most people we'd ever gotten in Asheville was maybe like 150 people, and that was after a lot of hard work. And then the first time we played in Port, when we got like 350 people, and what? we were like, what the hell? How'd that happen? I guess it's worth the drive. Yeah. So then we were touring the whole, we were touring the whole country. In 2007, Anders approached us and asked if he could join the band, and we did a fall tour as like a trial run. And then New Year's of that year was his first official gig. Did he? He has a knack of pacing a solo. Like living over in the studio is a perfect example of a, just extremely well paced, well thought out solos. And I'm talking about not the improv now, just within the space of the song. Mm-hmm. Did like that happen? Com- right composed right, melodies. Does that happen right away, or does that something that more grew after he joined the band, or is that something where right away in the band you saw that and he had that sort of knack? Um, I think he does have a real talent for sort of like we'll call them hooks or composing hooks or composing melodies, singable solos and stuff he says sometimes, and he's good at it. And he fills the space in our music really like right away. I think it just made sense that what he was doing was missing. Or there was like no one had to change what they were doing to accommodate his role in the band ah, because nice he feeling. just laid right over the top of everything that already existed. So the well. spaces were already there. The spaces were already there, and it filled it and made it bigger rather than someone backing off to allow another person to carry some responsibility for something or whatever. And you know he 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 maybe is one of my biggest fans, as in a fan of me. He often speaks very highly of my writing and stuff. And he listens very closely. He knows the lyrics better than anyone else in the band. Some better than me sometimes. Um, and I think as you were asking earlier about 
if they play to like the content or the uh, theme of the song and he very much does uh and i think it's i think it's noticeable to listen it makes sense yeah it totally yeah, it, makes it, sense it, to me that's why i asked yeah i love the studio version of that song i think it's one of the best things we've ever done in the studio now you get you get start getting successful you start getting notoriety and you start meeting your your heroes and uh seth was particularly interested in talking about sam bush yeah i love sam when did you first come across him? And when did you first become aware of him? Yeah, Probably aware of him before you met yeah, him. Yeah, so course. after I saw David Grisman and I thought the mandolin was cool, I looked into it a little bit. <clears throat> and Sam Bush naturally was the next person I found. And those were my two role models for choosing to pursue the mandolin. Uh, I like the melodically, I like what David Grisman does and what dog music is. And the relationship with Jerry Garcia obviously was cool for me when I was 18. Uh, but Sam Bush is just so funky and so cool and he plays reggae and... Uh, I went and saw him play that maybe that first year by myself um, stood in line to meet him. I have a picture. I still show him <laughs> sometime. Uh, so that was maybe like the summer of 2001 and was a total fan. You know, I probably gave him some b- demo recording of us. That was terrible. <laughs> maybe I didn't. Anyway, but it was definitely a fan and stood in line and got an autograph. I don't know if I've ever done that with another artist. And he's done my buddy now. It kind of warps my brain sometimes. Um, I'm getting more used to it. But the first couple times I met him and hung out with him, and he was so kind and so cool to all of us, I was like, this is so far out that he's my hero and he's my buddy now. What's some of the best advice that he's given you? Or anything you've learned just from watching him. Like <laughs> Billy Strings gave us a good one. Uh, he oh, yeah. really... Uh, so I think something that's important to us and that we talk about a lot is the performance thing I was telling you is too. It's like, it's not always about making great music. It's about performing and feeling good and having fun. And he really embodies that. Like his performance style is have fun with it. Be loose. Um, he sure does that. What did Billy tell you? I'm curious. He said, uh, you know, it was one of those super jams at the end and Billy played his, solo and then he like stepped over to get a drink and was like doing whatever and he looked over and even though because he was off mic he's like yeah whatever and even though bush was way off the mic there he was jamming up doing the rhythm even though he couldn't be heard and he was like intent has to be relentless has to always be there not just if you're off mic to just uh, you know then then it, then you start wandering into something else you know it has to always be present yeah he is very present uh, he's. I was trying to think like advice he's given me. He's he's a real storyteller. Oh yeah. So uh, as soon as you ask me what's some of the advice, I may instantly start cataloging through all these stories he's told us. Um, he's quite the joker too. So I love that guy. Big influence. Have you played with Grisman? Uh, I have not, really? and maybe will this weekend because he's coming to our festival. Oh, oh wow. I've met him. Um, I played with his son a bunch. Son's really cool. Oh. I had him out for some gigs. It's fun to have his son, and then we're hanging out playing gigs, and he's like, "Well, Dad and Jerry did it this way." <laughs> so I'm like, "What? <laughs> this is messed up." <laughs> well, the I crazy- tell you, we we always talk about strings and soul, and and I've I've said for years, I'm like, "Why do we not have dog? Why Peter Rowan?" And Grisman, like the yeah, I'm sure he might not want to travel. It might. I mean, I just think those would be great additions. That's uh, a good suggestion. I will bring it to the committee. I because I agree. Yeah, I think toward the end of the dead, there Jerry was way more uh, excited. Uh, about he was old in the way, not way more. He was old, much more excited about playing with Grisman than with the dead. At the yeah, end. I listened to the pizza tapes recently, and I hadn't mm-hmm. in such a long time, and I found myself being really surprised by how much of Jerry's vocal delivery on some of those songs is. 
real intense. Like they're just sitting around jamming for fun, talking about it and then playing stuff. But then he starts singing and I'm like, that song is high for him and he is belting it out. It's just mm. three dudes in a room picking and he's full vocal right. performance. I don't know if he's showing off for Tony Rice totally. or just what, but and he was, he's intimidated at points. You can hear in his playing. He's like cautious Jerry at points, <laughs> yeah. which is like, Whoa, it's cool. totally foreign to me. But yeah, he really looked up to Tony Rice. I mean, Grishman basically made that happen for Jerry, didn't he? Mm. That sounds right. Not the recording, but the fact the, the, hung the out. meeting, the jam. Who would you want to, if you had like David Grishman and he said, and you had a musician you want to sit down with, just him and you and the third, who would that be? Well, there's a lot of people we talk about playing with a lot. Um, Trey, who's in town right now. But sometimes those people that I really want to play with, I'm so intimidated by. Would you be intimidated if you played with Trey? I was so scared. The first time we talked, Mike? there's been chatter about him coming out to play with us a couple times, and logistically it hasn't worked out. And every time it's about to maybe happen, I get freaked out. On bass or banjo? Uh, Trey Anastasio on guitar. Oh, I thought oh, I thought you said Mike. I thought you were talking about there times. We did Mike have Mike. We did have Mike Gordon play with us. That was a little less intimidating for me. Did he play banjo or guitar? He played uh, guitar and bass. So it was cool. When did Trey almost happen with you? A couple times when we've been in New York and then that GD50 thing came up and he had to leave. And uh, a couple times it just almost happened. Right on. You're but it freaks, every time it freaks me out. I don't know. We'll see. At Come this on, point, Maddie. You've earned it. Yeah, I think it'll be great when it happens. But can you go to your agent and say... Go to his manager. His manager is on the road. Yeah, when, can you say, hey, let's do some dates with Del McCoy. Let's do some dates with Bela Fleck. Are you yet in that position? You guys are getting to that point where it's mutually beneficial to both artists. Yeah, sometimes. For, um, we have a little bit more pull with some bigger shows like that. You know, We often choose rock and roll bands, though, not bluegrass bands, because we think the contrast is yeah. nice. Um, well, true, is that the secret behind Camp Green Sky? Being, is that one of the, like, you know, if we throw our own festival, we can go ahead and bring the talent to that's us. That's true. And it is the first event that we've curated all the music on like that. And it's fun. Like it's, uh, it is supposed to be, and is naturally, you know, a representation of all of our likes musically, uh, and sort of an array of things. How it's not just a bluegrass festival, but it's not lacking other bluegrass bands cause we like bluegrass. So, so we're going to, we're going to try to air this as people are on their way to camp green sky. So two questions would be one, how much involvement are you all in curating, not just the music, but the whole experience? And then the second, uh, is anything in store that you want to tell people about? Uh, we are very involved in curating it. Maybe a little less this time because some of the infrastructure is set up from last year, but very much involved last year, including like the layout of the festival itself, uh, the need for more lighting so it wasn't dark everywhere, little stuff like that that you don't think of. Uh, and very much the music lineup uh, both years we're a little limited on time at the festival site and you know the biggest thing i think that we're involved on is we have this concept of no overlap scheduling and it's sort of a theory that a lot of these festivals we play and go to over schedule and there's just too much going on and sound bleed not even just for the sound bleed just for just the like the, the the present like if we're going to throw a festival and we're going to handpick every band I don't want to pick two people I really like and then have them play at the same time and then have my fans choose which band they're going to go see. Right. I understand the like tonight. desire <laughs> to have more programming so you appeal to more people and sell more tickets from a business standpoint. But you're looking to shine a light on acts, not to pit them against uh -huh. each other. Yeah, and I think it's just kind of stressful like to have to go see all that music. Like When they used to do All Good, for example, oh, yeah. it was like programmed 
I mean, Tim Walther's our friend. We're throwing a festival with him this summer, so I'm, this is not a disrespectful we all loved him. Mm-hmm. Um, statement at all. But they program from 10 a.m. until 5 a.m. And, you know, th- there's like the time between music and after music when you have to entertain yourself is a really important part of it. Yeah. You know, when the music's over and you're still wound up from music and you're back at your campsite and then you offer a beer to the guy at the campsite next to you and then you start hanging out with them and then some band walks by and they're playing music and you follow them for an hour. Some of that kind of stuff that's a part of going to a music festival is taken away if it's programmed nonstop or if it's just so intently programmed that you're watching half a set and then taking off to watch half a set and then taking off to watch half a set. Right. Because it shouldn't Bonnaroo. be a job to oh, go to. One year, Bonner, Dylan, and Wilco were on at the same time. It's like, what are you doing to me? Yeah, that's tough. I and mean, I guess if your site doesn't allow for all the people to be in one place, that makes sense. But And this is like logistical stuff that's kind of boring, but also we're passionate about. So the answer to the question is yes, we're very involved. Uh, we're into the log- logistical festival stuff, though, so... <laughs> You can go on on that all you want. Yeah. Because so, it's interesting to us, the band members actually staffing it. This is what Seth's getting at. You know, to what extent are you staffing? To what extent are you overseeing the fan experience more than you do another show? Right, Seth? Yeah, all of it. We oversee all of it, I think, um, except for the parts that people don't like. Those aren't our fault. Yeah. That's the, promo- <laughs> that's the promoter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. uh, we yeah. are the promoter. Oh, and you got Hefe, uh, Hefe there uh, this year on production. I think that's fantastic to... Bring them on board. Yeah. It, and so I think just, we waited a long time to have a festival because we were playing so many other festivals regularly that it's just like it felt kind of counterintuitive to compete with things that we were already so closely branded right. branded to. You well, know, like we we play Telluride every year, for example. So we're not going to throw a festival in Colorado because we play a festival in Colorado every year. But you also play all these festivals that uh, Strings and Soul, Winter Wondergrass, uh, the 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 Bender. So you know, and what I'm saying here is, we talked about this before, Rob. You've got you know the Dusters, Green Sky, Leftover. You got you know the Yonder, etc. Railroad. Mm-hmm. So you got all these bands that are kind of the core of the scene that are playing all these different places, and then you guys throw your festival. How much of an effort do you say? Okay, you know what we we want the we want to bring our brothers here because we we, uh, we when we're all together we create some magic, but we also really want to make sure that we're not just taking the same festival and right. plopping it here. Very much uh, conscious of that, and it it's challenging to n- not have all of our friends there. But like I said, we're limited on the amount of time we have to program, especially since we're not double programming. So we have to make choices to get some different stuff and, like mm-hmm. you said, not do that same festival footprint that we're playing all over the place. Now, you also said about going out west, right? You talked about going out west as a band. And I'm curious. I wonder if they would have the same effect. I mean, is Camp Green Sky something that could take place in Michigan and then six months later take place, I don't know, in That's California? That's Maybe. T- we originally – because for years we've been talking about having a festival and then not doing it until last year. And that was originally one of the concepts that we were going to pursue, kind of like Scotty does with Winter Wondergrass. Like yeah, it, yeah. It's a, it's a footprint that can move, and we thought that would be a good idea. Maybe it still will be the case. Um, or maybe if not, move the the footprint, move and have multiple locations, maybe just move the festival. So it's established in Michigan, and you did it for three or five years, five years, and then five you know start somewhere else and build about five years West Virginia or California, et cetera. Yeah. There are a lot of festivals, and so it's like... There are a lot Man. of festivals. Um, I'm excited that we're doing the one with Tim in West Virginia, too. 48, 48, 48, 48 and yeah. The lineup looks amazing, and really excited for that. All Good was amazing. I, it just 
used to work all said that it was years. a little overprogrammed, but it was so cool. They had a uh, great volunteer company there for years. Oh yeah. <laughs> Seth likes to steer the interview his way any anytime he can. <laughs> Whatever, come on, man. Um, what about you? Listen to a lot of music outside of your genre, though, like the Bahamas. Uh, oh, yes, Fire. I love, love the Bahamas. Bahamas. I, I just I've been getting so into them this God, spring. I love what, that, that guy so much. Amazing. It's so good. I had no clue, and I'm like, can't get. I can't stop listening to it. I didn't listen to anything else for a really long time. I do. Sorry to interrupt your question. I was <laughs> no, no, so no, excited no. that you brought the Bahamas. They're going to pull that stuff into the into your into the festival, and also, do you find yourself noticing impacts on your songwriting after the fact? Like you look back on a song later and you're like, holy shit, I picked that up from that Bahamas record. Or Very much. And specifically that song that we recorded in one day, which I didn't know. You've been listening to Bahamas that day? Probably? I had, no, I had been listening to the Bahamas very much leading up to it. And I used it, a song on the Bahamas record as a specific example for an idea. Which one? Uh, uh, noob. With no expectations. The one that goes boop, 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 boop. Sort of borrow the melody. Uh, it's got all. He's got all these kind of like Afro pop ideas that yeah. I call. I don't know if you would agree with me, but there's like these sort of like trancey guitar line things that happen. Um, and I wanted to sort of pursue that idea a little bit, and that's what I did on that song. So very specifically inspired by that record, Earth Tones. What are some other artists that would surprise us? And the artists that maybe if this festival grows, which I would not be surprised if it does, you can start reaching out and pulling these folks in. Yeah, it'll be awesome to, to sort of be able to have a continuation of bringing in influences like this. Uh, I get influenced a lot by things that are outside the genre because they do things that the genre doesn't necessarily do. Like, first time I saw Arcade Fire, uh, I was real inspired to write a song that was real anthemy and like sing alongy mm-hmm. and very much not jam bandy. Like, they don't even take guitar solos in that band hardly. It's just like song melodies breaks between verses and stuff like yeah. that and i was like watching the crowd and the way that it like influences the energy and then i saw him again at bonnaroo and it was like huge energy and i think that that sort of inspired me to write windshield um what else it's kind of random do you like know. any of these like steve gunn guys or uh, riley I walker or... i don't know either of those Jason Isbell was Southeastern was a big influence like lyrically and songwriter wise that's a great record he might be the songwriter of our generation I mean he just pumps out incredible stuff he is incredible be awesome to have him at Camp Green Sky sometime and what do you how do you feel about the new wave of country do you feel any part any any kinship toward the the Stapleton Simpson uh, Childers world yeah I love all that um saw Tyler Childers I love his record too he's got a new one coming out real soon right or did it just come out uh I don't know, but he's had one that one record out for less than two years, and people are singing along with every word at his show. It's, it's great, man. He had his success, his star rose quickly. Uh, yeah, I love that stuff. I love um, Stapleton. I like that kind of new country vibe. I like 
all the music really though. I like top 40 country too. That's the real pop crap. I just get self-indulgent in that sometimes too. All right, Seth, forgive me. The first time I saw them live, they were opening for Humphreys and McGee. So, I mean, did you take cues from them? Was it the Asheville show? Probably. I don't know. You opened for them a couple years ago. Yeah. No, no, no. It was more than. It was longer than that ago. Didn't you play like their 2000 show? Uh, I don't know how much we modeled after them. We do do a very similar thing, though. Do do. I said do do. That's a rule in the band. We say do do. (laughs) Uh, We're playing with them tomorrow. Actually, I'm excited for that. Good friends with Joel, the keyboard player. So. Give Waffle uh, a good hug from us. Uh, you know, it's his last uh, yeah, go-around for last this go year. He's I saw that he's moving on to a new thing. Good for him. Hey, speaking of light guys, real quick, and we'll go back to Humphreys. Do you ever be- have people call you and start like asking for lighting equipment? You're like, yeah, you got the wrong Paul Hoffman? Yes. Do you know Michael Weintraub? Of course. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> He did and, and he probably is like, no, stop fucking with me. Oh, uh, he did it. He did it. It happens a lot, and we joke about it. It's funny that Paul Hoffman and I have become friends because our names are the same. He's such he's such a good dude. We rent all our gear from him, actually, so he's our supplier. Well, he's speaking great. of Waffle, he's always spoken of how kind Hoffman has been to him over the years. He's a good dude. And, uh, yeah, Weintraub called me and talked about a pop-up in New Orleans for Jazz oh, yeah, Fest or yeah. something. We talked on the phone for, like, ten minutes before finally he said something, and I was like... Do you think this is Paul Sliding, Paul Hoffman? Uh, that was the greatest <laughs> case ever. Uh, so since you know him, that's fun. He was like right in the early in the conversation. He's like, man, I think the last time I saw you was at that charity event a while back. And we were hanging with Taylor Hicks. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> But I just kind of was like, I was painting my basement or something random, and I just was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember that. And he was like, oh, then we just kept kind of catching up. That was oh, hilarious. That's great. That'd for, be great. For folks that are listening, like, recognize that name. Uh, he is the photographer that does the instrument head um, book. Weintraub and, is. Yeah. 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 And, and, Paul and Paul Hoffman. Hoffman does, he's the lighting designer for White Panic and all kinds of other stuff. That I think it'd be hilarious if company. some festival was calling you. And calling Paul for information on what to do. and then... There have been all sorts of crazy. We had a lawyer one time send him a bunch of legal paperwork on accident because it was like somebody that's in the biz and has both Paul Hoffman's in their role. Oh, Wilson. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but you could you could always jerky boys one time, go with it, you know, and then uh, suddenly festival has like mandolins and Michigan crap. Uh, yeah, it's pretty go. funny. Yeah. <laughs> Bahamas uh, colors. All right. So back to Humphreys. Sorry. Yeah. So you said there's one thing you were leading toward one thing about Humphreys that you guys do similarly. I'm not sure what it is. Seven. Rock out. Uh, I, yeah, I don't know how much we molded our. We're inspired by them. We didn't know them well enough as we were sort of already becoming road dogs. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that the, that question gets asked a lot. Like, when did you decide to go out and get in a van for your whole life every day? But there's like, it's such a slippery slope of decisions that I don't remember making. Sort of like everything leads to its another decision. And it, it was always like, we were just doing what should be done. Like, should we go play this? Yes. Can And then while we're there, we should play this because we're out. Yes. And it's not everything was so like, if we do this, then this. It was just kind of like. That's we were, life. Yeah. It's, it's like, like that's life. The, listen, if you talk to successful people, it's not about, you've got to have a plan. But it's about uh, exposing yourself to opportunities, taking chances. And then through those, it's the same formula and the same formula is what you just said. And that leads you to success. The one that goes out and says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get here. And these are how I'm going to do it. You're fucking wrong. Maybe you're lucky and it works, but get the, get the goal, but you got to work. You got opportunity takes you there. Yeah. Step one, start a band. Step three, profit. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows what step two is. Uh, 
The two-step, of course. Yeah, we were just following, you know, one gig after another. And if we could play this gig, then maybe more people would come. And then we could maybe do this festival and then blah, blah, blah. And suddenly here we are 19 years later. Uh, you had to be inspired by people like Lex Lover Salmon, though. If they can do it, you know. Yeah, Anders would live in Colorado and watch them play. I didn't know who they were until we were already a band for quite a while. A lot of the bands that we roll with, um, I wasn't really familiar. When Dave and Bond and I started playing bluegrass, like we didn't really know who Yonder was. We didn't know who Leftover was. Um, and just sort of we're kind of doing the same sort of thing. Polygenesis, you know, like things that are created independently of each other in different places. Yeah. I... I the first crew guy we ever brought out was Kevin Gregory, who was doing monitors for Yonder at the time when we borrowed him for a tour. And it was the first time we had a sound guy. It was that tour with Anders in the fall of 2007. And then having one of their crew guys out gave us a little bit more information about what their band was like and how successful they were. Like, And I remember measuring success against that, you know, like telling my dad on the phone well there's this band i know called yonder mountain and like this is how much success they have and this is what it means on paper and you know this is what a school teacher in michigan makes so like (laughs) i'm not doing anything that's like ridiculously stupid like this could be this could work i could have a career from this that's sound whatever that means and maybe this is just a statement about how underpaid teachers are but (laughs) that too i remember comparing it that's a good comparison. The one to the other. And it's uh, and you're also influencing a lot of young folk. And that's, you know, I mean there's that part that we had to make it we had to make it work as a career in order to sustain this long. But it's not, you know, like we were like, how can we make a bunch of money? <laughs> but you have to keep it interesting for yourself. Yeah. And as years go by that becomes more and more imperative, doesn't it? I mean, do you find you have to make a conscious effort for that? Do you find you are working on the improv, you're doing improv exercises so that you don't go into the similar passages, to, you know? Yep, yep. Uh a lot of conversations and a lot of uh you know, and as we make records and come up with new ideas for new jams, uh, we, you know, talk about our tendencies a lot. And you're rehearsing a lot on the road too, right? We rehearse a lot on the road. Do you have a rehearsal space almost everywhere or is it I mean, every every gig? Are you rehearsing, or is it? That's a really good example of something that we from learned from Umphreys. Yeah. Now that you mention it, that band works harder rehearsing show to show than I've ever seen a band work. Well, it's because they don't want to do it away when they're off road anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and you, I mean, you can't when you live in all different places. But right. we went they're working the early. Off. That must be the shows you saw us open for them. Uh, it was like the Fillmore, Detroit. I forget. There were some early ones, um, and we were they set up a rehearsal room every night. We were like, wow, that's amazing. Um, and we do we rehearse every before every show more now than we used to. <laughs> every show more. You just were now. <laughs> the way I just used what, to. What were you working on now? Just play, we were just playing through the set. We haven't played very much in the last couple months. So even oh, things that we know well. You're going to blame it on the baby? Is that what's going to happen here? I know, I think, man. But so now when you're going over the set list, are you guys saying, let's crack the egg open here and let's keep it tight to the vest there? Or is you just, when the improv comes, it comes? Certain songs have moments that are, you know, pre-designed. Um, some of them have moments that happen or don't happen, depending on how it feels. So, yeah. Some, we, sometimes we write more segues than other times. And sometimes that's like a real creative conversation before the set. Um, today we were just playing stuff just to get warmed up and remember words and arrangements and a lot of arranging in this band with four soloists that's something you don't see a lot with non-bluegrass bands you know there's like even umphreys it's mostly guitar solos like almost all guitar solos 
Uh, you got banjo, guitar, mandolin, dobro. Every song. Who goes first? Wait, which person takes the bridge? It's like we. It's a lot to remember. But do you ever like when you get back on the road after having been off the road, get to the first improv point, and you're all just kind of like, ah, you know? I always wonder about the very beginning and the very end of tours when you're improvisational. That you maybe you're you're kind of blank slate at the beginning, and then at the end you're just emotionally idea exhausted. Uh, both, I guess. You know, maybe in general, I just tend to look at the bright side of all the things. In the beginning of tour, we are very creative in a new way. Everybody has new ideas from what they've been listening to and what they've been doing on their own. Also, because we haven't been playing a lot, we fall out of patterns. Patterns can be good because we improvise well. We listen. We know what to expect from the other player. Therefore, can embellish it better as a player. Uh, but patterns can be bad because they can stipend creativity. Uh, they can f- f- cause us to like go to places automatically instead of just exploring and finding new places. So, you know, in the beginning of tour, like last week we hadn't played in six weeks and we warmed up for a couple days prior, which was nice because we felt ready by the showtime. And it was, the improvisation was really fun. Sometimes I felt like it maybe wasn't as tight as it would be after a three or four week tour, but it was fresh and new and cool for me. Um, I was having a blast. I didn't want it to end, which is always nice too. But I, you know, like, as you say, after tour, after we were like real synced up from playing together, um, I think maybe musically we're capable of something that's more coherent as a group. Well, you probably do want this interview to end, so we'll, we'll start getting close to wrapping it up. We need to wrap it up. Oh, yeah, I gotta go got eat. Gig. Do you have any thoughts on the next record? Are you going to work with the same producer? What is his name? He's played with Jack White. He's played with a bunch of Motown folks. He's from Detroit. Uh, more, right? yeah. impor- more importantly, why are you not doing anything with Steve Berlin yet? Well, we mix it up, man. Uh, Dominic Davis is his name. Yeah. And he's an old buddy of ours. I don't know what we'll do next. Uh, we're starting to talk about it again. We're a little slower on the album cycles than maybe some bands are, but we're playing out. We're out playing a lot of shows. So, What insight does he bring you? I mean, Motown is, is recording heavy. There's a lot of attention to detail. There's a lot of anthemic stuff. What have, what what has his past brought to you? Do you feel? Uh, well, in addition to being a bass player for Jack White and this group in Michigan that we love for so many years, stepping in it, he's done a bunch of other stuff as a musical director, like with Leon Russell, mm-hmm. Buddy Miller. Um, he's a real good, and as a bass player, he's a real good like foundation musician. He's the kind of musician that like the person in the crowd who's not paying a lot of attention isn't going to be like, oh my God, that bass player is so awesome because he's like a selfless player who plays for the groove and plays for the song. But every musician that's ever met him or ever played with him is like, that guy is so good. He's a, like a musician's musician. So um, I did not mean anything bad by the random person in the crowd who doesn't appreciate him comment but it's just <laughs> Don't worry about it's it. kind of a thing and it's a bass player thing i think it's a sort of a selfless job in a lot of ways <laughs> i'd love to interview him uh so and he's known us for 20 years so it was real easy to just dig right in and start working and not have sort of like a honeymoon get to know you phase um and he just kind of helped with songs and a lot of like groove stuff our bass player on this last record was very uh, creative and integral in a lot of the song textures, a lot of the stuff that came to the table real blank. He's the one who came up with the baseline that gave it like a color and a feel. Um, so for our band, the creative impulse coming from the bass player with the bass player producing was, oh. it was cool. Um, like I said, the bass player's kind of got that selfless role. It's just playing the simple groove, 
But simple is so important. If you're playing last, what you are playing matters so much more. Uh, it was fun working with him. And you're becoming a bit of a gearhead. Uh, do, you, do you find that the more you're in the studio, the more you're learning and you're applying it to the live experience? Or do you uh, yeah. find you keep them separate, uh, gear gear wise? Or it's pretty similar. This time in the studio, we were using more of our own equipment. And the you know the first couple records when we started getting a little wild in the studio, we were using studio art engineer. Glenn Brown, we were using his gear to make sounds. And then after making the record, be like, what can I get to make that sound when we play it live? This time it was more like, okay, I've got this cool thing I want to use here. It sounds like this. Um, but we're getting more comfortable making records too. We know how to, you know, when we're in the studio, we know our way around the studio and the production a little bit better and have a little bit more input on like, what does the mic sound like here? I want to use this mic, not that mic. So... And you're the face of a band that's growing. You're getting pretty big. You're getting a following. People follow you around. <clears throat> is it starting to affect your privacy at all yet? <laughs> Sometimes. And where are you yeah. playing New Year's? <laughs> Just throwing it out there. See if we can get, get a fresh one here. So you can't ask me questions like that in interviews because I don't know what we've announced yet. I know where we're playing. You, have, you haven't announced it. I know where we're playing for the next couple to, years. I was, to, I, was to, I was trying to slide Bug me about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, sometimes I like it. I enjoy it. And often, you know, like our, I feel like our fans are my friends. I look out there and I'm like, I want to hang out with those people. I don't know that every band has that pleasure. Um, and I can't imagine what it's like to be in a band where you're separate from your crowd in some way. Well, that's a whole other conversation too, that we could have another time about how you balance being the musician, the entertainer, and also the fan and friend. And because you, you're, you're, you're a great hang. I mean, anyone that's hung (laughs) with you knows you're a great hang. So to be able to do that balance. But again, I think that's a, that we can go into that another time. But we'll end with Atlanta. You mentioned Smith So Bar. I was at a couple of those shows. It would be small audiences, but we were into it. Yeah, and it was uh, always fun, man. I, I liked there. that place a lot. What are your memories of Atlanta? You also had the Roxy show, where I mean, the Bucket Theater show, where you acknowledged Fisk's legendary yeah, my Roxy. Fisk show, yeah. Played the Variety a bunch of times. We played, we played the me- Tab a couple times now, which is really awesome. Yes. Sold it out. It just blows my mind. All of a sudden, Atlanta took a corner for turned a corner for us. Well, uh, apparently, a lot of people from Asheville come down to see you. <laughs> <laughs> it finally worked after thirteen years. Yeah, but they got to drive four hours. Fourteen uh-huh. years. We play. We have more successful shows in Asheville now too. Oh, you uh, do good. Uh, I love Asheville. <laughs> the problem with Asheville, you have to play downtown. A lot of times, it's hard to get the people to go to a venue that's not downtown. It's and that's I'll hard ne- like that in a lot of cities. It's. I don't get that. Terminal think- West here, we played that. I'm trying to think of all the venues we played in Atlanta. You we played, played all I've the seen venues. Your yeah, yeah, I think we might have started playing in Atlanta in the very beginning. But what are your f- memories, fan interaction or anything like that? Anything stick out that's Atlanta to you? We were just talking about how the 420 Festival, the first time we played it, was on in this park. And we went back to the hotel and had a jam with Railroad Earth. And that was in the early days of being friends with them. Oh, yeah. Nice. Uh... I saw Outcast at Olympic Park one time. Oh yeah, that was great. Your your trailer was designed by Big Boy. We noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thank Rob, you. how do you know that? Get That's good that. for Atlanta. Thank you. Well, come back to Atlanta. We, uh, we'll look for, I look forward to seeing you on the beach in a couple months. But uh, until then, I look forward to seeing you tonight. Uh, unfortunately, we're not at Camp Green Sky, but um, but next year, if you want a podcast situation or a uh, auction situation, you know where to go. I know where and, to find my auctioneer. And I'm a live music guy, and your live music, your shows are very fun. You guys are great live, but it's the songs. You guys have a ton of great songs. Thanks, man. Keep that up, man. Thanks for having me, guys.
your little bonding moment. It, you know, parents, the babysitting is a valuable thing. And you gave him a really nice treat, a free babysitting. If I, I didn't give that to him. That was one of his... Uh, well, you made the, You were the middle person. Well, I guess so, yeah. So thank you, Katie, for contributing that. Um, what else, Seth? That, a lot of eye-opening What else? Stuff. I can tell you a lot of eye-opening stuff. Let's talk about this summer. We're going to be taking a little bit of a break, but we're going to have a lot of stuff material. We've still got Taz coming to you. We've still got Neil Casal from Circles. We've got uh, a couple other things uh, that we're going to be releasing here very soon. Uh, and then Rob and I, Rob might be going on a little bit of a trip, but we're still going to be putting out uh, material, putting out shows and content, uh, and we're really looking to step things up here uh, once the fall rolls around again. I'll see you fish fans in Camden. Hey, um, I might actually see you fish fans with my son in Charlotte. I'm right. thinking about a family trip there, but me and my boy, uh, my best friend Brian and his daughter, and then Gabby and her two daughters. These are all like college friends as well, so it's kind of a neat thing like to go see fish with, uh, with our family. And I hope you'll get me that. We'll pay for July 10th. I want to see him in Connecticut, too, but we'll see. Seth, Seth has his connections. Hopefully hopefully that'll come through. That's well. I wanted to say one thing. I, in, in This dispatch is the interview we're waiting for now. Mm-hmm, yep. But I wanted to say that it recalled something in my head about Green Sky and maybe, to more of an extent, the infamous String Dusters. Yeah. Because one of the things that tore this band apart, Dispatch, before they took their hiatus, a hiatus that was preluded by 150,000 people going to the the Charles River on Hatchell and watching uh, their, what was their first farewell show. My point being that the songwriting is one of the things that tore the band apart. And it just made me more impressed with how this infamous String Dusters, who have five songwriters, are able to negotiate their way through that without any problem whatsoever. Right. And, and the band is stronger from it. They won a Grammy, for goodness sake. Yep. So, I just wanted to say that's something that came out. I was really, I was really surprised. I got into Dispatch in this... In this uh, so you're asking our listeners to uh, ask if Mr. Stringduster or something? Is this a, uh, a quest, Rob? I just, it makes it even more amazing what they're able to, how they're able to negotiate five songwriters. Because the, the dispatch, this, this benefit, I mean, this uh, documentary, which I think is called The Last Dispatch or The Final Dispatch, they're really forthcoming about what broke the band up. It's really quite honest and stark, and that was just something that hit me. And here they come. So let's wrap it up. All right. Well, Rob. I wish you a good summer. And we'll be back, folks. Uh, We're going to go ahead and leave you with some music. And uh, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. See you next episode. Adios. Arrivederci. I don't know how I'm feeling. And no one can verify if everything is working properly Cause it's always uh, There's something on the windshield And I can't fucking see Besides no one volunteered to drive me